Everybody ready to get into the Word? Would you shout amen this morning? We're in 1 John chapter number 4 for a few minutes today, <clears throat> near the end of your New Testament, 1 John chapter 4. If you found the book of Revelation, back that train up just a little bit because you've gone a bit too far, but not too, too far. 1 John is near the end of your Bible. And today we're going to look at some very powerful truth. We've got Valentine's Day uh, in our rearview mirror just a couple of days, and I hope everybody was treated with a lot of tender love and care on Valentine's Day. And as we continue in our Don't Waste Your Life series, with that in mind, I thought I'd take a few minutes this morning and visit with you about something that I think that you and I have to have in order to fulfill our God-given destiny, something that we must have in order to fulfill our God-given purpose so that we're living with intentionality, making a difference in this world and not wasting our life. And that is, of course, the subject of love, the very love of God itself. If you were here last Sunday, you know we talked for a few minutes about the subject of discipleship, the primary call of Christ. And if the primary call of the Lord Jesus Christ is the call to follow him and to be a disciple, what we're going to focus on today is the truth that love is the primary test of true discipleship. Discipleship is the primary call of Christ, and love is the primary test of authentic discipleship. That's what is at the heart of one of the Bible's most important passages, certainly one of the most important that the Apostle John ever penned, and it's found in 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse number 7. Let's take a look at it together. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is the living, breathing, authoritative, eternal word of the living God, and let all God's people say amen. You probably found through the years that love is one of those things that you kind of know it when you see it, but if you have to articulate and define it, it's kind of hard to do. It's certainly very difficult to define love in a, a short sentence or two because no matter how you would define it from the Bible's point of view, you'd give a definition and somebody else would pipe up in your small group and they'd say, well, yeah, but, isn't that right? No matter what you said about the biblical concept of love, somebody would always have a different twist or a different slant or a, a different approach from the Bible, and they'd typically hear your definition and say, yeah, but. I love the little boy that tried to define love, and he said, love is when your father finishes reading the bedtime story to you at night before falling asleep. 
And that's kind of what it is. There may be a little bit of theological truth in that. But love, basically, when we talk about it, we're really talking about this unconditional expression of affection and goodwill, this unconditional expression of forgiveness and compassion and mercy that we extend toward others in the same way that God has extended toward us. Does that make sense? So we know we've received the love of God. God has forgiven us. He's accepted us unconditionally in spite of the fact that we're sinners. And biblical love, one to another, is the same thing. We extend goodwill and tenderness and affection and warm-heartedness and forgiveness and mercy and reconciliation toward others that's patterned after what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. You can put some meat on those bones, really, by turning to 1 Corinthians 13 and reading the whole chapter. It's one of the few chapters in the Bible that's kind of garnered its own nickname. We call it the love chapter. And Paul goes out of his way in several words to define for us. It's a lengthy definition, but it basically serves as a definition of what love is. You remember, don't you? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs, all those kinds of things that he mentions there. But one thing that we can know when it comes to defining love is that there is no question that when it comes to the character of the Christian life, love is numero uno in terms of what God wants to see out of those who follow after Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There's just no question biblically that love is a primary character virtue, if not the primary character virtue. Paul there in 1 Corinthians 13, actually the last verse of 1 Corinthians 12, to set up the love chapter, and then the last verse of 1 Corinthians 13, to bring a conclusion to the love chapter, kind of tells us the primary element of love in the Christian life by saying that love is what? The most excellent way. That's how he starts the passage. And then he concludes the passage by saying what? Now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So it's hard to argue against the fact that love is principle. Love is primary. Love is the cardinal virtue in the life of a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And its presence or its absence in a person's life really does say a lot about the reality of their faith. There are lots of people claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who really aren't following the Lord Jesus Christ. As the old Negro spiritual said, not everybody singing about heaven is a going there. And that's true. Well, how do you know? Well, there are lots of ways that we could talk about in terms of tagging or identifying the authenticity, the reality of your faith. But certainly first among equals would be the presence or the absence of love. That's why we're calling this message today the love test. Because to be without love is by definition, according to what we just read, to be without Christ. And to be without Christ means that you're wasting your life. And let me give you three reasons why that's true this morning. First of all, it's true because love is the core of God's character. You want to know what's, what God is like? If I were to ask most people in the room today, give me one quality that you think of when I mention the name God, the majority of you in the room today would shout out love. Because that's what the Bible says. We're all familiar with that. 
Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. We love because he first loved us. So it's from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then the very pointed statement, anyone who does not love does not what? Doesn't know God. Because God is love. One thing that happens when a person is genuinely saved, you get the life of God reproduced in you. I mean, God just comes in and he moves in, he takes over control. Now you're fully surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not perfect just yet. We're still in a fallen state this side of heaven. We're still broken, but we're growing. And God is reproducing his life in us to where our life becomes pattern after his. Oswald Chambers says, the great wonder of Jesus Christ's salvation is that he changes our heredity. The purity that God demands is impossible unless I can be remade within. And that's exactly what Jesus has undertaken to do through his redemption. So one of the great changes that happens in me in my spiritual heredity when I'm born again is this change in how I look at others, not only in how I see God and how I relate to God, But what changes in me is my horizontal relationships, how I see people, how I view others, how I react to others, how I respond to others. My whole disposition toward others changes. And because God is alive in me now, he gives me this unique capacity to respond to others, not in a tit-for-tat kind of way, not in a way that says, hey, I'll love you if you love me, but in a way that says, hey, I'm going to love you like God. I'm going to love you regardless of what kind of love you give me back. You can love me back, and I hope you do, but you don't have to for me to love you because that's the way God has loved me. I love God today. Yes, I do. But I love God today because he first loved me. And had God not chosen to set his love on me, it would be impossible for me to love God as he loves me And it would be impossible for me to love anybody else as God loves them. And this comes as a reality that this is the core of God's character. John says it here, God is love. It's a very unusual uh, phrasing in the Bible. You don't often see it that simplistically where you have a subject, verb, and immediate direct object applied to God. God, subject, is verb followed by direct object. That's what it says here though. It says in the Bible, for example, that God is light. John will say that in this letter of 1 John, which is a statement about the holy character of God. God is light. The writer of the Hebrews will say, God is a consuming fire. And that's a statement about the justice of God, the holiness of God against sin. But none of those is as significant, I don't think, as this descriptive statement right here in chapter four. Very simple. We, we teach it to our kids. I mean, our, our infants learn this over in the preschool at Hillcrest, all 10 billion of them over there. I mean, they learn it. It's one of the first verses in the Bible any child at Hillcrest will ever learn. God is love. Say that out loud together with me. God is love. And that's at the very heart what Dr. Jim Boyce called the high watermark of the first epistle of John, right there in that simple statement. It's the very essence of who God is. 
And it's important to know because everything else that God does, I think, issues from this core quality of God's character. The Bible says God teaches us, those who belong to him. And you know why God teaches you? He teaches you because he loves you. The Bible says that God leads those who are his. I love the old hymn, he leadeth me, O blessed thought. Well, why does God lead you in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake? Well, I'll tell you why, it's because he loves you. And he doesn't want you to fall into a ditch along the way. The Bible teaches that God redeems us. We'll talk more about that here in just a second. Well, why does God redeem us? Why does God go out of his way to make a way back to him when sin has broken our connection and broken our fellowship? Well, God redeems us, of course, because he loves us. And I don't think there's anything that God does that's divorced from his everlasting, eternal, unconditional love. God is love. It is the core of of God's character. And that's why, brothers and sisters, it's a mistake to claim that you have the life of God if you're not living in the love of God. That's what John's getting at here today. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Look at what he says, for example, one chapter earlier, 1 John 3 and 14. We know that we have passed out of death, in other words, out of a spiritual condition of death, We know that we have left the realm of the world and the realm of death into life and the realm of everlasting life. How do we know that? Because we love the brothers. The love test. Whoever does not love abides in what? Say it out loud. In other words, a condition of lostness. This is how you know. One of the ways you can know. So, To sum up, it's important to realize you can't say you live in Christ if you don't love like Christ. You're not going to do that perfectly from the nanosecond that you're born again, but you're going to be growing not only in Christ, but to grow in Christ means by default that you're growing in the love of Christ. And you're learning to love others unconditionally as God has loved you. That makes sense? Say amen. Now, second thing that I want you to notice this morning is that love is not only the core of God's character, but it's also uh, something that God demonstrates to us. It's not only who God is, it's what God does, and God demonstrates his love in the greatest kind of way through giving us a gift, and it's the gift of his only begotten son. And so love is not only the core of God's character, secondly, love is the gift of God's son. Something God is, And something God gives, and how does God give it? Verse number nine. In this, here we go, let me show you. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. How? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this, the gift of God's son is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, watch this, important theological word, to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I don't have time to go into a full bore description about the different kinds of love that you find in the Bible. There are two principal words for love that are given in the scriptures in the New Testament. One is phileo, and it's a tender affection, an affectionate, brotherly kind of love. And then there is agape, and this is the word that John is using over and over and over again. 
He uses it scores of times in his gospel. It's what he's using over and over again here, agape, agape tas. And it's a word, it existed before the New Testament, but it wasn't very frequently used. And the New Testament writers basically co-opted it and used it to apply to the exclusive kind of love that you almost never saw among fellow human beings one to another. That was phileo. But it was a different kind of love. It was a costly love. It was a sacrificial love. It was a forever giving kind of love. It was a self-effacing love, a self-sacrificing love, an unconditional love that didn't germinate from feelings. I've said before, man, we've let Elvis and the Beatles and everybody else define what love really is. A popular culture kind of love that's all based on warm fuzzies and tingles and all of that stuff. But that's not what, I mean, we use it in our language. I fell in love like you just fell into a ditch somewhere. I don't know what happened. No, I mean, love is a verb. It's a volitional decision on your part. Biblical agape, what God wants you to do to other people in response to what he's done for you is to determine that you're going to love people regardless of what they're like, what they look like, how they act, how they respond, whether they give love reciprocally, whether it boomerangs itself back to you or not. None of that matters to a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. We determine that we are going to set our love and our affection on other people regardless of what we get in return or what they look like or whether or not we feel like that they're worth it. You know why we're to do that? Because that's what God's done for us. And if you wonder how in the world, what does that look like? Well, just look at the cross. God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for friends. He died for those who were against him or against him, as my granddaddy used to say. We weren't for him. We were against him. And that was because of the condition of sin. We didn't want anything to do with God. And that while we were still sinners, enemies, ungodly, that fifth chapter of Romans, man, is just magisterial in its importance. Because it defines who we are and it defines who God is and it best defines what God has done in giving us the only begotten Son. This is love that God gave his son, speaks to the supremacy of the love. I mean, what kind of a man demonstrates his love to another person by sacrificing their son? Man, I love you, but I'm pretty sure I don't love you that much. I'm not gonna offer, I'm not gonna take the life of my son. I'm not gonna slit my son's throat for you. But that's the depth of the love of God. God gave his son. Why? God gave his son to die. Notice the progression. God gave his son. God gave his son to die. The Bible says here he sent him as a propitiation. If you're using a new international version, that means atoning sacrifice. The shedding of his blood was required. His life was given. To propitiate is a word that means to satisfy. It's one of the most important biblical words. It means to satisfy, and it carries this idea of rendering an angry person more favorably disposed toward you. In other words, you've done something to tick somebody off. 
And in order to appease their anger, in order to assuage their anger, you provide a peace offering of some kind, right? And this is what propitiation is. We have, in essence, angered God. The Bible calls it the wrath of God. And our sin condition is what's done that. God is holy. He cannot fellowship with sin. Sin brings out the character of God's eternal wrath. His holiness cannot strive with sin. And God makes a peace offering available, a propitiation, in order to satisfy his righteous demands and to assuage his anger against the one who has committed the sin. Now, we live in this realm all the time, really. Guys, you do it in, all the time. And this happens all the time in marriages, doesn't it? How many of you guys in here have ticked off your wife? And so there's been a breach, and there is hostility. And what you do most of the time is you go out and you find a way to, to bring a gift in order to assuage the anger, to calm mama down, right? And so you look for a way to do that. And that would be whatever you brought would kind of be a propitiating sacrifice in order for reconciliation to take place. Everybody tracking with me? Even the slow men in the house say amen this morning, all right? So we experience this all the time. The difference here is the fact that in our sin and our offense against God, we weren't even able to know that God was angry with us. Nor were we capable of knowing that we should even do something to try to placate the anger of God that's directed against our sin. Sin's debilitated us that deeply. And so what does God do? Amazingly, this is why we sing about the amazing love of Christ. He offers his own propitiatory sacrifice. He offers his own peace offering by giving his son. This would be like one of you guys ticking off your wife, coming home one day, not even picking up on the signal that she's all hacked off at you. You come home and you find this big bouquet of roses sitting on the dining room table, and you ask, well, where'd these roses come from? And your wife said, well, you ticked me off last night, but I knew you didn't have enough wits to get it together, so I just went out and bought my own flowers. (laughs) Because I really do love you, and I know you're not there yet, Now, we still gonna have to get together, and so you're still gonna have to say you're sorry, but you're not gonna have to buy me anything to try to do it. Everybody tracking with me this morning? It's kind of like that. But what's amazing about it is, is that God offers his own sacrifice, and it's the life of his son. Now, can you think of any deeper definition of love than that right there? Not in the least. This is what God did on the cross. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God gave his son, God gave his son to die, God gave his son to die for the sin of other people. This, brothers and sisters, is the gift of grace that we've sung about so wonderfully this morning. This is the miracle of mercy. This becomes the very motivation for determining to love other people. If God has loved me in this way, and if God has gone to these extremes to demonstrate his love, his eternal and everlasting love for me, how can I not but extend that to others? Beloved, 
if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Love is the core of God's character. Love is demonstrated in the gift of God's Son. And then finally this morning, love is the fruit of God's presence. Let me just make this statement this morning. Loving others that way is something you'll never be able to pull off trying to do it yourself. You don't have what it takes, and people are too curmudgeon Can I have an amen this morning? Spiritual work requires spiritual power, and spiritual power can only come from a spiritual presence within you. You know, when you think about it, <clears throat> the commands of God that are all over the Bible are not difficult to intellectually understand. We get it, do not murder, do not covet, love one another, right? I mean, we get all of that. You can understand that. Doing it is what's hard. Doing it's what's difficult. But the good news is God doesn't leave you to do it all by yourself. Because, and it's a good thing because living in this kind of love toward other people, can we just all agree this morning, this is a hard command of the Lord. And you know why it's a hard command if we're honest with one another and we just face up to the facts the world and the church is full of difficult, high-maintenance people? How many of you here would testify this morning, you know somebody in your life, in your family, somebody you work with, and you would testify this morning, I know this person, I'm not going to name them, but man, oh man, they are really hard to love. Everybody in the room, probably name more than one. This is the world in which we live. And the thing is, their attitude doesn't matter. Their disposition doesn't matter. What they've done doesn't matter. Now, I'm not saying you gotta go out and gotta have an intimate friendship with them. You may not. You don't have to hold hands with them and, and, and high step through the poppy fields. You don't have to do that. You don't have to eat out with them. That's not what I'm talking about. But you do have to love them. You don't have to run in relational circles with them, but you do have to love them. You have to see them as Christ sees them. And you have to determine. It's something that you can do, but you can only do it with spiritual power residing in you and submitted to this leadership of the Holy Spirit in your life. And you can do that. You can minister to them. You can love them. You can help them when they need help. Those are all demonstrations of love, and you can do that with any and everybody, and you can and must forgive them. That's a different subject for a different day, but that's wrapped up all in one package when it comes to love. Three times in this passage from 1 John 4 and 16 times in the greater New Testament, you have this phrase, love one another. And it's not a suggestion It's a biblical imperative in the Greek New Testament. It's a command, love one another. And the fact that it comes to us is a command. I mean, why would God command us to do something that we were not capable of doing? The reality is we're not capable of doing it, not in our own fleshly strength, but we are capable of doing it when we're yielded to the Spirit of God, walking in the Spirit of God, abiding daily with Christ in the Word and in communion with Him. So remember, love's not an emotion, it's not a feeling, it's a choice, it's a decision, it's an act of the will. And the good news is God doesn't leave us alone to do it. He empowers us. Look again at verse 12. No one has ever seen God. 
If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, watch this, because he has given us his spirit. Man, I'm telling you, it's the presence of the Holy Spirit of God that changes everything about your life. So no longer do you have to say, I can't do that. Yes, you can. Yielded to the guiding spirit of Jesus Christ. The Bible makes it very clear. If you've got the gift, you're going to give the gift because God expects it from those who followed him. The fruit of the spirit is what? Love. First thing out of Paul's mouth, Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the spirit. How do I know the spirit resides in me? The fruit of the spirit is love. You know, the reason John devotes so much space uh, to love here, it's because I think, one of the reasons is because I think it's supposed to be the church's most natural and the church's most powerful witness to a lost world. I mean, the world just knows nothing about this kind of love, and the church is supposed to know everything about it and live it, and when the church lives it, it's supposed to be an attraction to those who don't have it. And a part of the reason that so many aren't attracted to the church is because, frankly, if I could just be honest, they look at a lot of churches, they don't see a whole lot of loving going on. They see some fussing, they see some fighting, they see some disagreements, they see people leaving. They hear arguments taking place. And because of that, they keep a distance. Nothing is more central to the gospel than love, and nothing is more crucial to evangelism than love. Jesus said, John 13, 35, for by this all people will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. And that's why this is a crucial part of genuine discipleship. Growing as a disciple means growing in love. And that's a part of our mission in helping people at Hillcrest and becoming like Christ. A part of that is helping them connect to one another and to the outside world in genuine love, both inside and outside the church, so that the world may know that we belong to him. And because we belong to him, it's changed everything about our life. We don't always do that very well. Most everybody in here probably has a story to tell about how they know somebody that doesn't go to church and it's because of what they've seen in the church or because of how they've been affected by the church. They see the church as a place full of self-centered people or they see a church that majors on minors rather than majoring on majors, a church that strains on gnats, whatever the case might be. I had a, I had a person that I was dialoguing with recently that told me that she had visited a church and the minute she sat down, it became obvious that she was in somebody's seat. <laughs> and she said, Pastor, the, the amazing thing to me was, it was obvious that they were angry with me that I was sitting in their seat. Can I make a a theological statement from the book of Hezekiah this morning? There is no book of Hezekiah. But if there were, it would say this, you don't have a seat in the church. And I'd like to say, I'd like to think that someone would say, if they've got the spirit of Jesus inside them, if I have to stand up 
through the service today so that you can have a seat. I am more than happy to do it. Right? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not rude. Love is not easily angered. You can know that life has meaning. And you can know that life has purpose. And you can live with intentionality. And one of the ways that you know that you're in the right track is by applying the love test. You got a beautiful picture of the Trinity here. God the Father is love. And God the Father has demonstrated love by sending God the Son to die in our place. And God the Father who is love, who has sent God the Son to die, is the same God the Father who now gives us the gift of God the Holy Spirit to live in us so that as we walk with him, we can reproduce his love to everyone we know so that the world may know him. Friend, let me just make it clear. You don't have to wonder whether or not God loves you. God loves you. The question today is, are you going to heed the command of Christ who made it very clear that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the acid test of genuine discipleship, the love test. Beloved, let us love one another.